You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hello and welcome to today's online program from the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial. The Commonwealth Club has, of course, shifted from in-person programs to online events during the pandemic. This is the latest in more than 360 online programs we have presented since March, and we are grateful to our viewers for making these programs possible. We appreciate your considering supporting the club, and if you wish to do so, please text the word DONATE to 415-329-4231 or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. If you are watching our program live on YouTube today, we invite you to submit questions for our guests via the chat box on your YouTube screen. And after the conversation between our two guests, I'll return and get to as many of those questions as possible. Now, today's program features Annie Jacobson, a journalist, former contributing editor to the, editor to the Los Angeles Times Magazine, and author of the new book, First Platoon. She will be in conversation with Max Brooks, a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point and author of the books World War Z and Devolution. Annie Jacobson is well known for her bestsellers, The Pentagon's Brain, Area 51, and Operation Paperclip. In her latest book, First Platoon, she investigates the age of biometrics and technology that will allow the government to identify anyone, anywhere, at any time. She delves into the Pentagon's abilities to utilize iris scans, fingerprint scans, voice patterning, detection by odor, gait, and more to track human patterns, as well as the ethical questions raised by what Ms. Ms. Jacobson calls a burgeoning surveillance state. Now, as I mentioned, she'll be talking with Max Brooks, who's also a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Now, let's welcome Annie Jacobson and Max Brooks. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for uh, Zooming in. I confess that I just <clears throat> read Annie's book, or I listened to it, uh, and it's it's an amazing read. But I'm not gonna I'm gonna tell you what it's about, uh, Annie. I want you to I want you to jump in and just give us just a quick overview of what awesomeness lies within these pages. Hmm. Well, first of all, thanks to the Commonwealth Club, Commonwealth Club for having us, and Max for having this conversation. Um, I am a reader and fan of your work, and look forward to talking about some really interesting things that are affecting all of us today. And the story of First Platoon, while it is set in Afghanistan and tells the story of a group of very young soldiers who are whose deployment to Afghanistan ends abruptly in catastrophe and tragedy, It also tells the story about the Defense Department's quest to build the most powerful biometric database in the world in order to tag, track, and locate people, and here's the rub, before they commit a crime. And that's why I think this story is just as important today as it was in 2012 when the boys went through what they went through. Now, uh, for those of us who are not award-winning Los Angeles Times authors, uh, what the hell are biometrics? Just give us a quick rundown. What are we talking about here? Um, And, you know, that was the very first question I asked when I first learned about this. Biometrics, human measurements. So the most obvious ones are fingerprints, iris scans, facial images, and DNA. And when I say obvious, those are the favored biometrics of both the FBI and the Defense Department right now. But as we heard in the introduction, uh, biometrics are expanding, you know, to include the shape of the ear, the patterns on your veins, the heartbeat, your individual unique heartbeat. These are all biometrics that can be taken without your knowledge or consent Unwittingly, the Defense Department calls it offset technology. But the point of all of it is to create these massive catalogs of individual people. Once upon a time, these catalogs 
that belonged to the FBI, these big databases, had only criminals in them. And that was explained to me by the many special agents with the FBI that I interviewed for the book. But now these big data databases have information, biometric information on all of us long before we ever commit a crime. And that really brings to bear this idea that we're going to talk about, which is what is security and what is straight up surveillance? Right. And so from the book, uh, you describe the idea that the whole point of this was that if you if you swept up into an Afghan, if the U.S. military went to an Afghan village uh, and then they could discern through biometrics, through fingerprint and through DNA. And as you say in the book, DNA is, oh, is it 99.10 s accurate to tell, say, uh, an Afghan farmer from an insurgent because if they if they captured insurgents fingerprinted them uh if they were released or if they escaped Mm -hmm. we knew the difference now as scary as all this sounds it also sounds like something as scientific as dna would be able to counteract things like racial profiling uh racism uh politics because we know that that certainly in the united states in, in the past many people have been sent to prison uh, because of uh, corruption, bias, whatnot. Justice was not served. And we also, we know that with the advent of DNA, uh, many people sitting on death row were exonerated. So is it is it inherently bad or is there a good and bad? You know, you raise this incredibly important issue to all of this, which is what is the intention and because I tell the origin story here of about Defense Department biometrics, I think it allows readers to kind of ask those very questions and then explore them as we, you know, move forward and in your own life and, and in society. The original idea, the FBI wanted to help the Defense Department to be able to do exactly what you're talking about, to be able to identify bomb makers saying, you know, this is criminalistics. This is, this is law and order based. This is a great idea. But that very quickly went astray when the defense department said to most of the FBI special agents who were working with them originally, thanks so much for the help, but we're going to actually go forward on our own. And the reason that created so many problems was because the FBI's database is are governed by laws enacted by Congress. So there's oversight. There's legislation. Um, you can't just stop somebody at a routine traffic stop and say, open your mouth. I'd like to take your DNA to see if you're wanted for rape in another state. Okay. But the Defense Department has no such oversight and no such guidelines. And so it gets very complex, chaotic, and ultimately out of control very fast because there's no one watching the watchers. Right. And we should we should state, um, we should remind everyone that the whole reason after 9-11, the global war on terror was given to the Defense Department, it was taken away from the FBI, was because... Uh, the Defense Department overseas could move much quicker with much less regulations. Because up until 9-11, the terrorists were watched and countered by the FBI. Uh, But they lost that right because there was too much oversight and there were too many legal loopholes. It was believed that we could prosecute the war on terror quicker. But as you say, now it's coming coming back here. Uh, So now what and you you just earlier said the most two most important words consent and knowledge so the danger is not that our government is building a biometric database it's that they could potentially build one without us knowing and without our permission so what safeguards are in place and what safeguards do you think need to be in place Well, it's tricky. I mean, back up for a moment about the idea that, wow, isn't it great if we just have a big biometric database of all of us? Because you have to stop and say, 
is that a, is that even a good idea? I mean, you know, people used to be able to live off the grid. They used to be able to say, thank you, I don't want anything to do with law enforcement, with the FBI, with, I, I just want to live my life and be a good citizen. I'll pay my taxes, but leave me alone. And that's kind of a foundation of, you know, Western democracy, that you have that option. And what we're seeing happen now with these biometric databases, I mean, you can see it just right now with all these in insurrectionists being identified from social media through facial images, which is a biometric. Once upon a time, it was a mugshot. Then it moved to be, you know, facial images. And now we have facial recognition software. And so at the heart of the matter, before you even get to, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? Because yes, we should as you know, the people be able to make these decisions, but ultimately they get argued in the courts. And what we're seeing happening is that the arguments in the courts about right to privacy, about whether or not um, people are being, you know, whether if, a, if, a, if your photo is taken while you're walking down the street and that later comes into play in a very public way, has your right to privacy been violated? Those Fourth Amendment questions are being debated in the courts at a snail's pace. In the meantime, you have these issues of, you know, civilian justice, civilian law and order happening at science fiction like speed, just like we have seen in the past week. The big fear among among the lawyers that I speak to on this is that will some of these cases against the insurrectionists could they potentially be thrown out because of these right to privacy issues? Because, I mean, that's the fruit of the poisonous tree argument, that if what you if what you garnered to build your case on was an illegal search and seizure, then perhaps it, it can't be used. Right, right. And it, it seems like there are there are clearly val valuable arguments to be made on both sides. Uh, because, like you said, you can't you can't live off the grid anymore, uh, even if you're a law-abiding citizen. But by the same token, uh, Ted Kaczynski lived off the grid, uh, so it seems it seems that you could make an argument for both sides. But it seems like uh, the arguments themselves are not keeping pace with the science. And it reminds me of the speech that Eisenhower made about nuclear weapons, that when he was born, the weapons of his childhood were the musket and the cannon. And now it is the hydrogen bomb. And he warned us, he warned us that, and I can say this as a writer, I can tell you all the great science fiction of the 1950s and 60s was all about our power racing ahead of our wisdom. But what do you, as someone who studied this, think could be done for our our society, our rights, our laws, our national discussion to catch up? How do we do that? Do you mm -hmm, think? Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let me tell you the origin story of the fingerprints for the for the Defense Department. And I find this astonishing because it's almost like a puzzle within a puzzle. You don't really know the answer. So it goes like this. Um, this is the moment where the Defense Department started its biometrics program. Shortly, and I, and I tell the story from my interviews with the special agent who was in charge of this program named Paul Shannon. And he was working in the rubble of the Trade Center after the planes had taken them down, after 9-11. And it was his job as an FBI agent to locate fingerprintable body parts. That's what a grim job it was. And at the time, he learned that the CIA, the paramilitary organization, and the special operators were going into Afghanistan and were going to be, you know, going after terrorists within weeks. And Paul Shannon said to himself, we've got to get the fingerprints, the biometrics of the fighters leaving the battlefield, because these guys are going to be really important and they're going to scatter. That's the basic premise of asymmetric warfare. You can just disappear into the crowd. And it's such a good idea that the director of the FBI gives Paul Shannon and a couple other special agents his Gulfstream to go to Pakistan and fingerprint 
the fighters that have been captured leaving the battlefield, all of whom claimed, oh, I'm just one of, you know, I'm just a cook because they were captured near and around bin Laden. Shannon fingerprints all these guys, takes their DNA, takes their photographs, hand carries it back to the FBI, and the system, the information goes into the database. Well, not a few months later, he gets a phone call that says, you're not going to believe this. One of those 30 terrorists in that, you know, little tiny prison, secret prison in Pakistan, he's been arrested in the United States. He's in the FBI's database, which has to mean he was here in the United States. And this is astonishing. And as it turns out, and I, I tell the longer version of the book, but this was a man by the name of Mohammed al Qatani, who was in fact supposed to be the 20th hijacker on 9-11. There were 19 hijackers. Mohammed al Qatani was stopped at the border, was, you know, the, the, the Customs and Border Patrol agent was suspicious of him, rejected him, and his fingerprints were taken. Imagine what the DOD must have thought in that moment. This was a one in six billion person match hit. And so the long-winded, that's a long-winded answer to, my God, imagine the good it could do if we have these databases and know who these individuals are and you can stop them. It could be the difference between a terrorist attack. But that was a very long time ago. And technology, like you said, has moved forward at this incredible speed. And we're now in a position where these databases are too big. They're controlled by a very small number of people and understood by even fewer. Right. Well, it, it sounds like this is the age old argument of in, in any democratic society of uh, where is the power? It's the same thing with with nuclear weapons. It's the reason that. Um, that every every time a nuclear w missile drill is conducted, it has to have two keys by two separate people that have to agree. Little things like that. It's the same reason that a policeman must read you your Miranda rights. And have you not been Miranda'd in, you can walk. Uh, so we have these safeguards, but uh, it sounds like this is moving very fast. And I think I'd like to to not segue, but point out that at least if this is our government keeping a database on us, there are safeguards. Maybe they don't move so fast, but I elect these representatives who elect the judges. And if I don't like the way things are going, well, maybe I should get more of my friends to vote. And maybe I should pay more attention in civics class. However, these massive databases are also in the private sector. And we learned this right after 9-11. We learned that while we were getting so angry at the Bush administration for collecting our data from our online searches, Google, one of our biggest companies, has based its entire business model on spying on us and collecting big data. So what safeguards are there? And, and just another fine point, these, many of these corporations are global. China owns TikTok. So every kid that goes on TikTok, China is building a database on them. So in the private sector, what are the safeguards to protect our privacy? Well, there are almost none. And that is, that's the bad news and the bad news because, and I think even worse than the lack of safeguards is the utter lack of transparency because the, and, or you could, you could say transparency or you could say desire to know. I mean, you know, we could sit here and geek out about biometrics and we are, but at the end of the day, a lot of people say, oh my God, I've got, you know, dinner to make and the laundry to deal with. And wait a minute, you want me to know about, you know, these highfalutin, high technology, big data systems. I'm just going to trust that this is being taken care of by someone. And I think the story of First Platoon makes explicitly clear in just a simple tale of a group of young soldiers in Afghanistan and the aftermath of what happened, how all of those ideas that I'm being taken care of that you just said as well are actually not true. They're not in place. They're not true. And the system is spiraling out of control far faster than anyone is really catching up with, with the, a way in which to understand these systems 
in a simple manner, not just a esoteric, um, asymmetric warfare geek manner. Well, you you have the story. One of one of the the through lines of the book is a war crime that, and we won't spoil it. Uh, but a war crime has been committed, and uh, the perpetrator was sent to federal prison. However, there was a pardon on the table, and the pardon is based not on the biometric data, but as I understand it, a lie about the biometric data. It's actually the biometrics that would have done the right thing. The science itself would have kept this murderer in prison, but it's the people who are able to lie about it the same way they cover up any evidence, uh, bloody gloves or whatnot. So it, it seems it's like- absolutely right. It's a, it's a twist on this idea that science doesn't lie, which it doesn't, but humans lie. And so as you create a more and more rarefied world where no one understands biometrics, they don't understand how that how they can be captured. They don't understand where the information goes once it is captured. Then ultimately that information can be used against you and you the the whole world the, with the example of the rogue army officer i tell in first platoon he goes to leavenworth convicted of a double murder war crimes as is appropriate and if you read the book you can it's all pulled from the trial transcripts and you can make that decision for yourself you can also decide whether 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 his sentence was fair but he is convicted he goes to prison and then he is released after President Trump is presented with quote-unquote DNA that proved that the people that he killed were not civilians, but in fact terrorist bomb makers. I mean, it's it's sort of hijacking the public's sentiments about war and obligation and, and the role of young soldiers in a foreign country to fight America's war. It's just taking all of it, turning it upside down and manipulating the reality of the situation simply because people are too busy to understand what's going on. But I urge everyone to just pay the tiniest bit of attention because at the end of the day, it's not as calm. It's a little bit like the emperor's new clothes. It's not as complex as it's made out to be. And, you know, you keep coming back to the idea that, that we're busy. And it seems like this is this is the issue. And this is this is just basic human psychology that we tend to not want to deal with the problem until we have no choice. And you could argue whether that is true or not, but you could argue that the reason that Kennedy and Khrushchev did not destroy the world was because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And had Hiroshima and Nagasaki not happened, had it just been a a bomb in an empty desert without the horrific casualties that we could have seen, Kennedy and Khrushchev would not have been able to imagine that sort of devastation all around the world. So with nuclear weapons, you got a bang and we put in the safeguards. And as a result, we have had not had a nuclear explosion in anger since 1945. But this seems like, if I understand this, this seems like a slow creep. This seems like something that it just happens and happens and happens. And one day you wake up and you realize, oh, wow, my DNA is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a story I tell in the book that is very simple and frightening where involving DNA, because DNA as a biometric is both powerful um, in the criminal justice system to be able to gather you know, evidence from a crime scene that a perpetrator left behind. No doubt, this is a fundamental of rule of law. The systems have moved from taking two years to identify to 94 minutes. You can now do a rapid DNA test, thanks to DOD money. Um, But I tell the story in the book, which was originally reported by two New York Times reporters, where a 12-year-old boy was called into detectives in New York City based on uh, his suspected involvement in a felony crime. He's offered a McDonald's soda, which he accepts. And when he's done with it, the detective wearing rubber gloves takes it away, takes the straw out, pulls cell samples from his lips, 
And that 12-year-old boy, his genetic foot fingerprint goes in to a database. He was later proven to have nothing to do with the crime, but it took his mother an extraordinary amount of time and the help of a big legal firm to get her son's genetic information out of a database. That happens, can happen to any of us. And as you say, it sounds a lot like once that happens, it's far too late. Right. And it seems it seems like we would need uh, once again, it's not the science, it's the transparency behind it. Because when you are brought in, when you are arrested uh, and, you, and you're brought into the police station, they fingerprint you. You don't get a say on that, but you know you're being fingerprinted. And your fingerprints are fine. Uh, so it sounds like there needs to at least be, if not consent, awareness that you are being genetically fingerprinted. So at least you know that that is happening. So at least then your lawyers have the ability to trace that. Because like you said, it was the DNA that got him off. And you also mentioned in the book, DNA got the Golden State Killer. And if you could just talk mm -hmm, for a minute about mm -hmm. that, that's the other side of where DNA can be a force for good. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think, I mean, the concept here that you're hitting upon is identity dominance. And that's why it's in the title of the book, First Platoon, a story of modern war in the age of identity dominance. This idea that the Defense Department or any law enforcement organization, for that matter, wants to dominate my identity, that's a bit frightening. And what it means is that they can and perhaps will have all these disparate pieces of information about me, about you, about anyone at their fingertips, pun intended, to be able to then dominate the situation when, when, the, when, the, when the question arises, is this person guilty or not? And that is something that merits a much larger discussion than is going on right now. But you had a question in there that I forgot. I, I was talking about, because uh, we talk about a DNA, and I was saying that you also mentioned in the book about when it is a force for good and that you have several examples. So first talk just for a second about the Golden State Killer. Uh, because when we say they have our DNA, oh God, what do they know? What do they know? Well, by the same token, there are people who have something to hide and have got away with it for, what, 50, 40 years? Tell us about, about that. That story is really interesting to me for two reasons. One, I tell the origin story of rapid DNA in First Platoon through the eyes of its inventor, a man named Dr. Richard Selden, a Harvard-educated microbiologist. And again, it brings up that theme of like, you know, Frankenstein versus Dr. Frankenstein. Like when scientists create something that they believe is for good and it gets out of their control. And, you know, Dr. Selden certainly presents a great case that what he believes he has done with rapid DNA, the ability to determine someone's DNA in 94 minutes. What that means is the perp that's in the police station is still in the police station after 94 minutes and you're, you're, you're waiting for the test results. Whereas before it used to take up to 24 months, the guy would be in the wind by then. So you have this idea that DNA is moving faster than we can keep up with. And the Golden State Killer was found through this, you know, civilian company called Jedmatch, just a, two retired businessmen in Florida who were, you know, sort of history um, ancestry fans. And they wanted to help build a database whereby other people could figure out who their ancestors were, again, for the greater good. This idea that, you know, maybe um, people who had been adopted that were searching for their birth parents. And it became extraordinarily popular overnight. But what was unknown to all the users was at the same time, state and federal law enforcement agencies were using this database, taking samples of old, you know, DNA, maybe the cigarette butt of a perp of something left behind at a, at a, at a murder scene. And they were using this database to try to do what is called familial genotyping, which is to figure out who people are based on who their family members are. 
And this is how the Golden State Killer was found after decades on the loose. But what I also thought was particularly interesting about that was even Dr. Richard Selton, who invented the rapid DNA test, he told me that he could not have foreseen what GEDmatch was capable with familial genotyping. And that's where we're talking about, you know, Annie and Max can't think through these ideas and what they might mean and what might be next and what they might foretell. And your analogy with Eisenhower and the bomb is so important here. If the actual scientists can't imagine, my God, what will become of this? What monsters can be unleashed? And that's not, again, meant to just terrify people. It's that old thing of, to quote Eisenhower, you know, that it's the knowledgeable, it's the informed public, I'm paraphrasing him, that is the key component to making a democracy work. And, and we should just take a step back and, and remember that that's why we have these systems, because there's different types of intelligence. And, and you and I have both, we know the scientists. We know scientists. We've worked with them. Uh, we also know that they get lost in their own work and they get very excited about. They, you know, they are not horizontal thinkers who see the big picture. They are vertical thinkers. They drill down. Uh, Oppenheimer, who invented the atom bomb, had to actually watch it go off before he said, my God, what have we done? Really? You didn't know this when you were you working with your little Rubik's Cube? You had to blow it up? Thanks, Oppie. So that's why we have judges and courts and lawyers and journalists, one of the most important factors of a democracy, journalists who can inform schmucks like me that go, oh, wow. And I just, I, I want you to talk for just another minute because while we're talking about our society, let's jump back to Afghanistan Another example is, as I think I remember from four hours ago, when biometrics was a, a force for good that helped encounter insurgency. So talk a little bit about the man in the purple. Well, you know, I, on the one hand, you have these young soldiers capturing biometrics on the ground of civilian insurgents alike. The program in Afghanistan, it was secretive, not secret, was for the Defense Department to capture 80 percent of the, the biometrics on 80% of, of Af all of Afghanistan. So the, that's that catalog that has to exist. Then, on the other hand, you have what is called persistent ground surveillance, which is actually an overhead system in an aerostat, which is a big giant balloon or other ways, drones and things, whereby full motion video, so that's video with geolocation data embedded inside of it, tracking individual people who are anonymous on the ground. But all of this data needs to be processed by AI, by you know intelligent machines that are run by a software system called Palantir, because no human can keep track of even one, one zillionth of this, let alone all of it. And so these two systems are kind of working hand in glove. And what was shocking to me interviewing the, the, the persistent ground surveillance operators, they're called PEGIS operators, they were actually watching the movement step by step of the soldiers in first platoon. This was completely unknown to any of the soldiers. And yet the PEGIS operators are watching the soldiers every time they step off the outpost, technically so that they can warn them of IEDs that are buried in the ground because they have all of that mapped or at least a lot of it. It didn't work out well that way at all, as you can read in the book. And at the same time, the PGIS operators are tracking individuals who they think might be insurgents. And that comes to the story of the man in the purple hat. And the PGIS operator named Kevin gave me a series of these remarkable interviews whereby he's watching this man in the purple hat and he literally has to watch everything. He watches him go to the bathroom. There's no indoor bathrooms in this area of Afghanistan. So everyone goes to the bathroom outside. He's watching him do that. He's watching him pray. He's watching him watch it, wash his clothes in the river. He's watching him go home and he's always wearing a purple hat. What the PGIS operator is looking for is what are called three interactions with the earth. Then that meets the qualifications to kill the man. 
the government's methodology in Afghanistan is called find, fix, finish. The biometric systems find and the PGIS operators fix them. They figure out where they are. And then a drone is called in or another form of aircraft to finish them, meaning kill them. And I tell the story of the man in the purple hat because it indicates how much can go wrong. The Pegasus operator has been watching this man. They know he's a terrorist. They're going to kill him. And he comes into the outpost one day and his colleague says, we're about to kill the man in the purple hat. And Kevin, the Pegasus operator says, wait. Um, he notices that the man in the purple hat is on a very expensive tractor the kind that really can only be used by an actual farmer. And I won't give away the whole story, but suffice to say, the man in the purple hat became came extraordinarily close. The, the farmer on the tractor became, was mistaken for the man in the purple hat and became extraordinarily, came extraordinarily close to being executed. This is the kind of thing that can go wrong. Right. Right. Because once you're dead, uh, you can't come back. You can't say, oh, we made a mistake. And you can't say, check my fingerprints. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. No, it's too late. When you use lethal force, uh, there's no coming back from from deadly force. But now, certainly after the capital insurgency, it looks like we are entering a new phase of domestic terrorism, which we haven't seen since the 1970s. you know, even my generation, Gen X, is too young to remember a time when there were bombs going off all the time, uh, when there were homegrown left lefty insurgents groups everywhere. And now the right is, seems to be doing it. But now that we enter this new phase, how do you see biometrics being used in a way that protects people's rights, but also keeps people safe? Because, you know, let's remember when we talk about uh, surveillance, law enforcement, we're not just talking about uh, beating up poor people or brown people who are innocent. We're also talking about, as you mentioned in the book, the guy who used to blow up abortion clinics. Uh, we are talking about stopping someone from going into the next black church with an AK-47, uh, going into the next synagogue. We are stopping the next person, the next Timothy McVeigh. So how do we do that? Do you see preventing this? But at the same time, uh, not looking at all of us going to the bathroom every day. I mean, these biometric systems absolutely can be used part and parcel to rule of law as it is intended to work in a Western democracy. I mean, you have to have a situation. It's part of the social contract to have one group of people in charge and allowed to enforce rules and laws. That's the basic proponent. And so in in an interesting way, if we want to be hopeful, which I think we should be, we can look at the situation that is upon us now, whereby we have, we, we saw both ends of the spectrum in terms of protests, unrest, and, you know, civil unrest. We've seen it since June. And it culminated um, January this past, you know, just a few a few weeks ago at the Capitol. And let's see what law enforcement does with the biometric tracking systems. But I think it's going to be a great opportunity for everyone to be involved and to put their sort of best Western style rule of law hat on and say to themselves, you know, where does privacy factor into this and what rights am I willing to give up for the greater good of society? Because that's the fundam that's like a foundation since the age of reason. We, we are all, we agree as a society to give up a little bit of our freedom for a little bit of security. And the line always moves. You know, we had this in the sixties, we thought that cops were going too far. We even called it Gestapo tactics. So we we put in all these great rights. And then in the 70s, maybe we went a little bit too far in the other way. And a lot of bad guys got out. But now the needle shifts and the needle is always shifting in our country. And that's a good, healthy thing. But if you can, you don't really talk about it as much in the book, but clearly you know what you're talking about. Just talk for a few minutes about a country that doesn't 
have that back and forth that we have. Talk about the Chinese, their big data and the trust index that they are now building among their citizens. Well, China is the best example of all that can go wrong. And China specifically has a program called Physicals for All. And this was a biometric tracking program to catalog every single Chinese person of Uyghur descent. And it is estimated that, that they now, China has a database of 2 million Uyghurs. And this includes their fingerprints, facial images, iris scans, and DNA. And the frightening part about the DNA, it's believed that in that way we talked about GED, what GEDmatch can do, that the Chinese government is doing to actually use the DNA to determine who else might be of Uyghur blood, which sounds very much to me like what went on in Nazi Germany. And this is a frightening program. It's very dangerous. And when it came to bear by some great journalists just a few years ago that have been covering this story, human rights organizations around the world went wild with, you know, this is so terrible. Not one single place out of all the research I did, did I ever see a human rights person make the connection that this program is almost precisely out of the Defense Department playbook in Afghanistan. Right. So we should say that they they are using, without any safeguards, they are using biometric information to racially profile they, an entire community. And... I don't know whether you know this, but it would seem that the Chinese Communist Party would then have a surveillance state within a surveillance state, which would then curtail movements, which would then curtail jobs, uh, which keeps an entire community essentially in a giant re-education camp. So to my fellow liberals, who I love, let us all remember that when we all tweet about Israel, we are doing this on a phone made in a country that's putting two million Muslims in a re-education camp. You hear that? Uh, and because this is a country and we're funding this, we should always remember that what role we have in a capitalist society, all our stuff is made, all our Disney products go to this country. So that big data is being funded by us. But I did recently see photographs, just to even add a really frightening coda to that, was I saw photographs of Uyghur cemeteries being dug up and the idea, very frightening idea, is that the Chinese government is going as far as pulling up, you know, skeletal remains so as to get DNA and build out this database to racially profile anyone who is even the slightest hint of Uyghur descent. And this is just, you know, frightening on top of frightening. And this is the country that makes our shoes and our iPhones and everything else. And we, and we don't talk about boycotting or divesting or anything like that, because God forbid we lose these cheaply. They could be made in Flint, Michigan, but oh, clutch the pearls. We might have to pay a little bit more. Oh no. Or, or all these Silicon Valley people who supposedly are voting on the parties of human rights, uh, don't really seem to care. Uh, but anyway, I, I think that I've, I've made my little political stamp for the moment, but I'd like to, uh, John Zipperer, that's a real name, John Zipperer, I'd like to open up the floor to anyone else who has questions to ask Annie, because uh, I could ask her questions all night. Well, very good. Hello again, and it is time for some questions from our online audience. Um, and here's a question really for, I'd, I'd be interested in either of you, or both of you, excuse me, responding to, and that is, what impacts have biometrics had on your work, uh, you know, Annie as, as a journalist and a researcher, uh, you know, Max and military strategy, and of course, defeating the zombie menace. Um, mm -hmm. has, has it had any impact noticeably on your work or your access to sources and things like that? Annie, oh. you first. Well, you know, I wrote a whole book about it, but, um, <laughs> but what, I think that Max should tell us about how it affects science fiction, because sometimes you can learn as much about a subject reading science fiction as you can read it, as you can reading science fact. Well, you know, the role of the storyteller 
uh, is hopefully to teach us something if we do our job right. But we all have an ego defense mechanism. Sometimes if you, if you give people a little bit too much truth, um, people tend to tune out. Uh, but if you wrap it in a veneer, then you are able to get people just familiar. You introduce them to something novel, which Annie does in her book. She talks about Minority Report, uh, which science fiction movie. But Minority Report introduces us to the notion of pre-crime. You're going to commit a crime. And it really is. A, it, and now it's something we really have to deal with, because as I was reading this part of the book, I thought, oh, my God, I was j literally hearing on CNN the story that the FBI had been tracking much more dangerous, not protesters, but insurgents who are uh, who are who are arming and preparing to go to Washington, D.C. And the FBI got in their way and said, listen, you haven't committed a crime yet. But we know what you're planning. And if you go to D.C., you will be arrested. And they didn't go. And as a result, a lot of shots were not fired and a lot of blood was not spilled. So that was Minority Report in action. I mean, I can tell you biometrics. Um, it happens to me in real life. Uh, as someone who after 9-11 has been pulled out of God knows how many airline. Oh, wow. I can't tell you how many flights I, I've been pulled off of in line. Uh, just because, I mean, look at me. In the days after 9-11, wow, was I yanked off. And that went away for a while. And then when I was coming back from London with my family, when I went, when I flew into the UK, you know, you have to look through and then they take the picture. And then for, and then when I was waiting to get on my flight, someone from British Airways came in with a list and basically said, you, 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 and pulled us all out. And we all just sit in a little room. And my, my poor little boy was scared to death. Why are they taking daddy away? My wife's freaking out. And, and I'm sitting in the room with everyone. We're all uh, different countries. And we're all asking each other, where, where did you go? What, what, we all know about algorithms. What did you trip? What did you this? What, what did I go here? And I looked around and I realized we're all darkies. What no blondies there. No blonde hair and blue eyes. Everybody was either my shade or darker. And because I had no passenger bill of biometric rights that was read to me, I don't know. And I think that's something that we have to remember. The algorithms, the big data that, that flags someone, it's not there yet. It's not perfect. This is what Annie's trying to warn us about, is it's still a machine and you still need human beings to look it over and say, wait a minute, your algorithm is wrong. And if we don't fix this, you could destroy lives. I mean, the worst thing that happened to me was some time out of my day. But what if it's something bigger? What if it's a drone strike? What if the FBI shows up at someone's door uh, and that person, God forbid, gets angry, this is America, we're all armed, flashes a gun and is then shot. So I, I think, I think what Annie is trying to tell us is that biometrics as a tool of law enforcement is not inherently bad or good, but when any new tool comes into the toolbox of society, it must be examined and debated by all. Okay. Someone asks, are there any ways to fake out or get around biometrics? They say they're asking for a friend. Um, or is this headed in the direction of no way to stay off a of government's radar? Annie? There's almost no way to stay off the government's radar. However, um, when I was writing the book, I went to several different uh, biometric conferences, one of which was uh, with an emphasis on DNA. And the, a little detail that could be straight out of science fiction, but is science fact, um, you know, you could you can never fake your DNA, right? Well, I listened to the story of a man who had undergone a bone marrow transplant for a very severe form of cancer. And over time, his DNA shifted to that of the person who provided him with the bone marrow transplant. And my first thought was, my God, this is what the arch criminals, you know, the top level you know, Russian spies are going to begin doing to be able to 
escape that biometric capture net. What I will say is the book I wrote before this was called Surprise, Kill, Vanish, and it was about CIA paramilitary operators. And I traveled to a number of foreign countries with a number of them while I was working on the book, uh, including Cuba and Vietnam. And let's just say there was a lot of tension going through those iris scans that Max is talking about because all of them had big profiles. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can tell you that in the work that I've done, uh, there's always a low tech solution solving a big tech solution. This is the history of warfare, especially in, in the, the history of the United States at war. We always we love big tech. That's our bread and butter. And constantly in warfare, we come up against an enemy that has a Stone Age solution. Now, we thought when we went, and Annie knows this, when we went to Afghanistan, we thought with drones, especially drones armed with thermal cameras with heat signatures, the day of the ambush was gone. There was just no way. We could just track them. We didn't realize someone had invented the wool blanket that the Taliban uses, a nice big thick wool blanket that it drape, they drape over themselves at night when they sleep under it. Can't see them. So there are ways. Uh, so someone asked you, and that you, Annie may have just really kind of said this, um, but do you think we will eventually have this full identification and tracking of all citizens that we're seeing China kind of roll out? I mean, is this an inevitable thing? Mm -hmm. And I want to tag to that, if, if I could, another question from the audience, which is, is this likely to continue a pace under Biden as it was under Trump as it was under Obama. I think that the I think the biometric systems are nonpartisan. I think the rule of law issues um you know have a little more to do on part they 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 access on party lines. But I think that we're only going to see more biometric systems because the big data systems that are processing the data that's the that's where so much of the money is. And so it's like the Defense Department military industrial complex, you know, or as one Defense Department insider told me, they call it the self-licking ice cream cone. Um, there are 85 million ground-based surveillance cameras in the United States. We have the largest per capita surveillance state, and that's larger than China per capita. I, I can say that this is this goes back to a conversation I had with a friend of mine in the intelligence community once uh, the torture scandals came out in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. Because remember, the Bush administration's argument was, uh, we need to torture these people. We need to waterboard them because, God forbid, there's a ticking bomb. And if we don't, the bomb's going to go off and kill people. So we are torturing people to save lives. And I asked my friend, I said, has that ever happen? Have lives ever been saved by torture? And he said, well, I can't obviously tell you that. I said, well, then we don't have a debate. That is only a debate if there are two sides to an argument. And when it comes to power, any form of power, you in our society, it needs to be open and clear. And then we, the voter, can decide what is best for us. But the Bush administration, uh, set the precedent of the sheepdog saying, well, we know better. You don't need to know. We got this. And we got this doesn't work in a free and open society. Then there's no debate. So I'm, I think that there needs to be full transparency and there needs to be a reckoning every time something new comes in the toolbox. Full transparency. How does that work in a time of when you've got very active forces misinforming the public? Mm -hmm active forces. We, right. We've all seen these people saying, ah, the COVID vaccine, it's got biomarkers on it. Yeah, well, that, that's what Annie was saying. That's, this, is in, this is the crux of the climax of Annie's book, is this war crime is doubled down, not by bad science or by some evil hoodoo voodoo technology, just people lying, just people lying for politics. And I've done a lot of work on biowarfare, because uh, we talk about vaccines. And really, it, it takes people of courage, like we've seen like in Liz Cheney, to stand up to the fanatics and the self-servers on their side. And we got plenty of fanatics and self-servers on our side. So it's going to take people in the middle to be able to take on the wings and say, no, 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 
Maybe that hurts me, but that's not true. That's John McCain saying to that woman, no, ma'am, he's not an Arab. He's an American who loves his country as much as I love my country. And he lost the election in that moment, but he gained back his soul. And if we don't all do that, then we will leave ourselves open to the monsters in the box. It's absolutely a middle of the road issue as Max is talking about. And I mean, I think that's the, you know, anyone who has kids can begin to kind of see that because the extremes don't get you anywhere, but where, where the, I think where the most productive discussions about how to move forward as a great society that we are and all of these liberties that we have and balancing rule of law within that, it's being able to be a centrist about it and not having such an extreme idea about, you know, I'm right, they're wrong. Because that is actually what biometrics are trying to fundamentally do is to divide people into groups, us versus them, insert, you know, good guy versus bad guy. That's the danger in it all. That's where you start to have totalitarianism come in, dividing people into groups. And I would say also that biometrics is just another form of science. And the problem with science, with data, is that sometimes it makes you not feel good about the beliefs that you had going into an argument. You know, you believe something, you feel good, you go in, you look at the facts, you go, oh, I was a little wrong about something. And every every side is guilty in this. You know, you talk about anti-vaxxers. The anti-vaxxer movement did not start in some rural town in Arkansas. It's right down the street in my hometown in Santa Monica, a few blocks away. We got one guy, Dr. Death, who said on Bill Maher, I believe vaccines cause autism, but I have no proof to back it up. That's a medical doctor. So if we value our feel-goodness more than we value the objective facts, we are finished. We've talked for obvious reasons a lot about uh, China and the United States and their role in, in biometrics and such. Um, what do we know about other countries? And is this very widespread? Are the United States and China the two most um, aggressive in pursuing this, or are there some others maybe uh, that are dark horses in this? Dark horse is a good question because those are the ones you always want to look out for. You know, what is Saudi Arabia doing? Who are they tracking with their biometrics? But um, the Indian government recently showed just how big and how fast and how effective a biometric program can be by capturing in less than a decade biometrics on one billion Indian citizens. And that was for a program for food that, again, the setup was essentially well-intended. You know, the idea was people were handing in their chits and sort of faking a chit and getting someone else's food. And the the idea behind this was, well, I, if we have everyone's iris scans, we will be able to authenticate who has been given what. So good intentions, but that's a billion biometrics right there. I did not. I did not know that. That's why you wrote the book. Hmm. <laughs> well, leading up to 9-11, there were a lot of intelligence critics who said that the United States had been over-relying on technological spying and under-investing in the on-the-ground human intelligence, double agents, spies, and the rest mm -hmm. that helped give information that couldn't necessarily come from intercepted phone calls or chat rooms. Um, is biometrics another lure into misappropriating, you know, focus and money and, and, and attention and maybe underinvesting it in, in other. Big question. Wow. I mean, we could spend a whole hour on that, but you know, the, the question that I think maybe the metaphor for that is science doesn't lie. Humans do. And so on that axis of human, which the questioner is at, is, is talking about human intelligence, there is always going to be the balance the, of the human foiling the science. And that's, you know, that's espionage. And, and, you know, and I'd always say you have to have a mix of both. You know, we, after all the Black Lives Matter uh, marches, uh, there was this narrative that the, the rioters, the, the looters, the bad guys had infiltrated the, pro the peaceful protesters and had, had used that as cover in order to do some really bad stuff. Now with biometrics, we would be able to prove that. We 
able to say, no, 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 we know these people. They have rap sheets a mile long. They've never been involved in any Black Lives Matter before. They were there to cause trouble. But while you do that, you also need to have the kind of police chief that we had in LA who took a knee with the protesters, and by the way, caught a lot of flack for that, and said what I thought. I grew up in LA. I'm, I'm Generation Daryl Gates. And I, in my life, I've never had a police chief of the LAPD say, listen, my job is to keep the peace. And if that means taking a knee with protesters, I will do it. I will do whatever I have to do to keep the peace. So you need both. You need science, you need head, and you need heart. Um, is there such a thing as there being too much information being accumulated for it to be useful or in the days of big tech now, is that not a challenge? In other words, the, these agencies and, and the forces, we have the issues that, that you've already talked about, about the human use of it, but is there even going to be a problem of the systemic understanding of this just from so much that as tens of millions of people's data, biometric info mm -hmm. gets, gets accumulated? Or as I said, is big data solve that? Well, that's the that's the end game that I think is frightening, which is where AI becomes too important because only AI systems, only system machine systems that can learn can handle this data and process it. And there is simply too much data coming in with all these surveillance systems we now have to be processed by anything other than AI. And that is your military industrial complex potentially gone awry in the field of surveillance. Yeah. And I, and I think we, we have to remember that in an age of globalization, uh, Chinese companies are still very much Chinese. Russian companies, very much Russian. American companies are global. And that's how they think. That's their business model. We had Tim Cook. Remember, he said, I'm not going to put a backdoor in the iPhone to track terrorists because our first obligation is to our customers. He met his global customers. He's not an American. But we have to remember that if if we are not watching who our corporations do business with, because a lot, remember, a lot of these big data corps, they farm out to cheaper corporations, which may be contractors who may be working overseas with other laws. You know, we know this now. Uh, so it may be an American corporation, but if the server itself, if that data is being handled in another country where the laws are very different, then even though we have the rights and protections here at home, our data is sitting in Kyrgyzstan. So I think we have to keep an eye on it. And there's something that we have. It's called the Committee. Uh, it's, a, it's called CFIUS, Conflict of Venereal Disease, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And it was specifically set up to make sure that we did not farm out anything from the private sector that could be used against us. And we need to look at CFIUS again with the eye of big data. Okay, well, we've now reached the point in our program where we have time for just one more question. So we'll try to end this on a, on a hopeful or at least a helpful uh, uh, tone. And that is, we've talked about, you know, certain types of regulation or oversight or, or something that could be done. Can maybe each of you give one or two specifics on what you would like to see as the government either comes to grip or attempts to come to grip with some sort of regulatory structure that could tackle what is clearly something that's going to continue to happen? I think just the, the, the slightest bit of information and understanding and, and learning about the topic of biometrics is brilliant. And then from there, you ask yourself the question that Max was talking about earlier, which has to do with the fact that, you know, society, society does evolve and technology is moving us forward. And so we have to think with a new set of eyes about how to deal with this. That means putting away some of our old ideas but really moving forward for me, as a, certainly as a parent, that the idea that rule of law is a good thing. It's just that we have to help the law enforcers work within the, the society that they now have. And I think that that comes from you know, opening up the lens of your own perspective on what you think might be right, might be wrong, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, and looking at things sort of with a hopefulness toward the new era that we are now in. I agree. 
I think one safeguard, this is a, a long-term safeguard that we could put in place, is get civics taught back in the classroom because all the kids I know, they don't know how their government works. They literally don't know about the three branches of government. They don't know about checks and balances. I think that that must be taught, but I would go farther. I think it should be taught by veterans. I think the money should come from the Departments of Veterans Affairs, not from the overstrapped Department of Education. I think that our veterans, many of whom need a purpose when they come out of uniform, should be retrained to become school teachers and teach. Here is our constitution. Here are our three branches. Here are our checks and balances. Here's our rights. Here's why we have rights. Because a lot of them can speak, not just from the head, but from the heart about places in the world that they have been where these rights do not exist. I think that we talk a lot about people not trusting in their institutions anymore, but they don't understand it anymore. You know, we need what is called a culture of ownership again, but not ownership in terms of owning stuff. Owning our institutions, owning our government, that will start in the classroom and it will, it will be long-term, but it took us 50 years to get from the greatest generation to where we are now. And maybe if we turn it around in 50 years, We'll have another greatest generation. Okay, I'm going to add one last thought on that off of, dovetail off of Max's ideas that I think the beginning, the place to begin with getting rid of your old ideas and moving forward is precisely on that. For whatever reason, the sacrifice of veterans has been sort of sidelined in the past 20 years in the war on terror. And it's almost as if veterans issues has become an issue of the Republican Party. This is an absurdity. And I think both parties need to realize the incredible sacrifices of people like the young soldiers in first platoon and the millions who have served recently without nearly the kind of acknowledgement that needs to be given to them. Yeah, which and which also does not mean worshiping them, because I think there's there's a uh... A lack of, there's an irresponsibility in thank you for your service because we've seen that since 9-11 where people go, oh, oh, thank you for your service. You're so amazing. Wow. Now go away. In my dad's generation, nobody said thank you for your service because everybody in some capacity was serving, even if it meant rationing, even if it meant blackout curtains, but everybody did something to contribute to the current events that they were living in. So I do, I, I, I think that the military has to get off its high horse and we need to get off the couch. And we need to understand that what affects one of us affects all of us. I think that's a great final note to end on. Our thanks to journalist Annie Jacobson, author of First Platoon, which you can purchase at your online or local bookstore. And thanks also to Max Brooks, a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. And we thank you, our audience, watching and listening today. This concludes this program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at informsf.org.